Well, I've always loved the workings of the mind to really detach the two. The mind and body connection is just so strong. And we can't push a child beyond, you know, what they are, what they are genetically capable of doing. If boys are doing something, they're more inclined to talk about their feelings. So, but I'm like, you know, if you don't, if you don't pay for it now, you're going to pay for it in medical bills later. So... Hello, welcome to the Dre and Smiley, the Inner Circle podcast. This is a podcast where we speak with ordinary people living extraordinary lives. We're most excited today to have Dr. Stephanie Winfro on our podcast. All right. So I'm going to read a brief intro here. So Dr. Stephanie Winfro, who has her PhD in clinical psychology with a specialization in neuropsychology, has built a practice specializing in psychoeducational assessment, and psychotherapy for children and adults. Dr. Winfro is dedicated to uncovering intellectual, developmental, emotional, and cognitive strengths and weaknesses in order to optimize academic achievement along with social and personal success. Dr. Winfro's primary goal is to help provide her clients with the insights and tools needed to move beyond current neurocognitive and psychological limitations by focusing on strengths and resources. Specifically, her services with Boca Behavioral Health primarily include comprehensive neuropsychological evaluations, psychological assessment, and psychoeducational testing. And just to add, she also has an office she opened relatively recently in Raleigh, North Carolina. With that, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So let's start from the top. What made you decide to pursue a career in psychology? Well, I've always loved the workings of the mind, you know, how the mind works and how it produces, you know, our behavior, our thoughts. And um, I think it's where a lot of our decisions and our intentions originate from, from the mind and from the soul. And I've always been into, um, you know, figuring out, diving deep into that. Um, and so I fell, you know, stumbled upon psychology in high school. And then I decided to really delve deeper into that in my undergrad and on to grad school. Um, and it's always just been a passion of mine and from a very young age I was fortunate to have some really great mentors and great advice that was given to me and one of the best advice pieces of advice that I was given was to really find your passion and then find a way to make money at it and so I always just went in the direction of my passion which was you know the mind and psychology and um, kind of figuring out these abstract concepts and those sorts of things and that really just kind of opened up the field of psychology for me and then I wanted to delve deeper into like the medical side of things um, so then I started looking into neuroscience and really figuring out you know these are our thoughts and our emotions but where do they where actually do they come from where um, how are the neurons working together to to fire off and create you know what we see um, and our interactions yeah. and our feelings um, so really that passion that I had from the very beginning I was fortunate enough to really um, understand the need to really follow that passion and have it create you know the the path and the um therefore the abundance you know that that um i've been able to really enjoy and be blessed with you know throughout my career is just going into yeah. that um, leaning into that passion yeah you know it's interesting uh you, you use the word fortunate and i i'd say that 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 you are fortunate in that so many people throughout their lives when they're younger, feel like, oh, I'm going to be this. I'm going to pursue this or pursue that. And they really never really find that one thing 
that wakes them up early in the morning, that drives them, that one passion. So um, I, I'll share that there was a time when I was in, in uh, college where, actually just before college, I thought, oh, I want to go into psychology. Everyone says I'm a good listener and, I, and I'm good with helping them, you know, resolve their problems. And uh, yeah, that never, that never took off. So, <laughs> so, so you were fortunate that you had a mentor to help kind of guide you and, 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 uh, and, you know, show you the way. So tell me this, here's a basic question. Um, what is the difference between mental health and physical health? I know that for me as a layman, you know, physical health, I know if my back is sore that I probably need to stretch more. Uh, if I have a headache, you know, it may have been something I ate. It could be a couple of different things to troubleshoot. Um, I pretty have, a, I think I have a good understanding of what physical health is, but from your perspective and what you do, how would you describe the differences between mental health and physical health? Well, I think that they are very interconnected. I think it's so hard to really detach the two. The mind and body connection is just so strong. And I think a lot of people um, sometimes overlook that. And I think it, we're learning um, to to really pay more attention to that connection. Um, but I do think it's, it is almost one and the same. You know, if we're not feeling good physically, that has a, an impact on our emotional, mental health. And if we're not feeling good mentally, you know, that has an impact on our physical health. So um, I'm a big proponent of advocating for health and in both areas um, so that it really has the synergistic effect, you know, when we're healthy mentally and physically, that can really provide us the opportunity to be our best self. Um, so I do think that there's much of a distinction. I think that I'm very much into the holistic, holistic perception perspective, you know, clinically to be able to really attack health on all these different areas um, and bring in different professions. I never think of myself as like a one woman show. Like there's always um, other people in different professions that can offer such valuable input, you know, to really create your best self. Um, I think you know, being in the psychology, it, it is, or, or in any field really, it's, it's about helping other people become their best self. And to do that, you have to be willing to do that yourself and really figure out how can I make myself you know, the best version of me so that I can be the best psychologist, the best mom, the best friend. Um, and to do that, you really have to incorporate physical and mental health. Um, so yeah, I don't think that there's really a way that we can separate the two. Mm -hmm. oh, makes sense. Makes sense. So here's a follow-up question to that then. So with physical health, you know, it's something that I've been familiar with most of my life in terms of having a sense of what's ailing me and knowing, oh, I should probably go to the doctor for this, or I don't need a doctor for that. With mental health, how do I, how does a person, what's the, what's a good way to assess their mental health state. I think what what a good a good mental health sort of test for yourself could be is, you know, can you sit alone with yourself in silence? And when you do, what sort of thoughts come up for you? You know, what sort of thoughts, what sort of feelings, what sort of, you know, what comes up for you when you sit by yourself in silence with no phone, no no YouTube, no you know, no distractions. Um, first of all, can you sit by yourself like that? And what is your comfort level in doing that? And what comes up for you? I think people can be surprised at, you know, when we take away all the distractions, what happens internally? I um, mean, when we just shift that focus from the external to the internal, what does that look like? It's sort of like taking a, a mirror and and um, looking at yourself on the inside, which I think a lot of us, you know, unfortunately, the way society is, there's so many distractions around. We don't have many opportunities to do that unless we make the opportunity. So, um, so doing that, I think is a good way to just check internally. 
um, what's happening and being open to what comes up, you know, not, not judging it, not, um, you know, not analyzing it or not beating yourself up about it or anything like that. Just being open to what's coming up for me in this moment. I think, you know, a lot of people will find, wow, like I'm actually really anxious just sitting here by myself, or maybe you have a lot of mental clutter, you know, well, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And there might be a lot of that. So I think the level of mental clutter and, and emotional discomfort that comes up for you, you know, when you try to sit by yourself like that can give you a good barometer as far as where your mental health is. Um, and then also the effect it's having on your body. You know, a lot of people are a lot more tense than they realize, you know, sitting there you might start to notice patients in your body, you know, that, um, that are connected with those thoughts and feelings. So that's, I think, a good mental health checkup for just anyone to do by themselves. Um, and if there is something that comes up, you know, then are you an internalizer? Are you an externalizer? What works for you? Not everyone is, not everyone is a good candidate for talk therapy. You know, I'm a psychologist that might sound surprising, but some people just do better with other forms of therapy. You know, maybe it's acupuncture, maybe it's, maybe it's more bodily related. Um, maybe it's more, you know, going for a run. Maybe it's, um, talking to a close friend or journaling or, talking out loud, you know, there's a lot of things you can do without having to sit on a couch in a psychologist's office. And I think, you know, the traditional therapy is great for a lot of people, but some people have other forms of stress outlets that, that also are very effective. And then my guess is that that's determined through trial, trial and error, which works best for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some people know themselves, I think it's your level of self-awareness too. Like where, you know, you might know certain things might be more comfortable for you, but it's all about taking that one step out of your comfort zone. So not staying in your comfort zone too much, but also not pushing yourself to the point where you're not going to stick with it. Um, so that, that space where you're, um, you yeah, know, where you're doing something different. I always tell people like, just do something different. If you're stuck in a rut and it's not, something's not working, something's got to change, we'll just do something different. <laughs> do something different and help me. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I want to circle back to where you were talking about emotions and thoughts, because I, if we were to put a percentage on it, how much of this comes from genetics versus environment versus, um, all right, I have a family of, of doctors and lawyers and you, you were born, but then you were raised in a, in a different area. Would that hereditary genes and DNA affect you if you're not in the environment with the people who pass them to you? And if you were to put a percentage of 51% environment, 51% genetics, how would you identify that, that, so that metric? Is, that is a great question. And I get this question all the time as far as, you know, how much is the old, is the old age question of you know, nature versus nurture, um, nature being the, um, you know, what we're born with, our genetics, and then nature being the environment um, in which we were raised, um, what we're exposed to um, externally. So the, you know, if, if, I, if I had to put a number to it, I would definitely give more weight to the nurture side of it. Because when we're born, we do have a genetic makeup. We have things that we are genetically predisposed to um, that may express themselves or may not. And I think the, the nurture part of it is um, is the part that really can make a huge difference in whether or not those genes are expressed or not. Um, if, we're, if we have genes that lend to addiction or um, genes that lend to serious mental health issues, but we're raised in an environment that is conducive to um, empathy and support and really being able to work through those sorts of emotions and things as they come up and eliminating any stress or, you know, to the point, to the extent possible, being able to provide just a lot of emotional nurture. Um, 
then and also nutritional and you know just a, a really great environment for the mind and body then you know we can prevent those genes from really expressing themselves um so the nurture i think is the most impactful i would say like throughout development and even into adulthood um that can make a huge difference on whether or not those genes are expressed so i, I would give more weight more percentage to the nurture side versus the nature no, that's awesome and it's a follow-up um I, I apologize for referencing the YouTube as a source, but I, I see sometimes people when they're when they're pregnant, they'll say, "Oh, well, my child who's three or four is really good at the piano because when they were in the womb, I played classical Mozart, or I let them listen to Chinese speakers, and now when they're four or five, they have an affinity to speaking Chinese." Do you find any validity in that sort of? pre-arrival of the baby and in the womb sort of development of external sources and influencing the, the, the fetus while it's in the womb as it's becoming a baby and saying, oh, well, my kid is really good at piano because I played Bo Mozart or Chopin when he was in the womb. Does that work? In my my first inclination, I'll be very real with you, is to say no. Um, that's, that's my first inclination. Um, I think that my, yes, like nurture and as I mentioned, the environment has a huge impact on whether or not genes are expressed or not. But we can't create those genes if they're not there. So, so the thing is, like the um, you know the brain has a capacity. We have a capacity for growth that is that is tremendous. But we can't push a child beyond you know what they are what they are genetically capable of doing. So, you know, we can't create a, uh, an Einstein, a baby Einstein, or we can't, we can't create these sort of things on our own. Like they have to have that, and, and generally speaking, the children who are inclined to have that very superior capacity, they seek out that knowledge and they seek out those sensory experiences and those things that are gonna really allow them to, to reach that full potential because they're just naturally curious. Like when you have that capacity, um, the brain is just so adaptive and being able to find those resources to satisfy itself and to really achieve to the level that it can. So I have so much faith in the brain and the mind and how, how it works until I think as adults, you know, we do things a lot that are right and we do things that are, that are not so right, you know, but I think that we're not going to have so much of an impact as far as the capacity of the, of the, of the brain, of the mind. Um, I think it's great. You know, it, it can't hurt. It can't hurt to expose them to those things, and and I think you know if that's the type of parent that you are, you probably are providing you know a very attentive environment that's going to provide a lot of opportunities for success. You know, so that's definitely a great thing. Um, nothing wrong with it at all. Um, but you know, is it going to make them? You know, if they were going to be average, is it going to make them very superior? Probably not. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I, I think I think you answered this last one. This came up when uh, it's like you see on TV and they say, "Oh, I had a brain injury," and then they wake up and they speak twelve languages, or they had a they hit their head and now they play five musical instruments. That's that's probably that's probably something that's fantasy on YouTube and internet TV fantasy. Right, well. right. Yeah, I, I can't. No, I, yeah. I've, no, I've never seen that. <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never seen that in any major, you know, articles, not that I'm aware of. So. <laughs> Okay, so with suicide today being so prevalent, right? Um, I was reading somewhere that the CDC said that suicide is the 12th leading cause of death in the U.S. At least in 2021, it was. 
what, that, that begs the question, how can we as individuals be more in tune with friends, family members, loved ones to assist with preventing that? I'm really glad that you brought that up because that, that has been something that I've seen a lot of in the past couple of years, professionally and personally. You know, it's, it's been, it's almost like a pandemic in a sense of its own. Um, there's been so many people that you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect, you know, that are, that are doing these things and um, that are hurting themselves and having self-harm thoughts and suicidal thoughts and, and going through with it. Um, so that's, it's been, a, it's been a devastating um, realization in the field the past couple of years, like how real that is for so many, especially children who are very just naturally short-sighted. Um, so first, I think it takes being more spiritually and emotionally in tune um, because there are a lot of people who aren't going to express it, you know, and, and those are usually, unfortunately, some of the most serious cases are the ones who don't tell you. Um, and so you really have to be more emotionally and spiritually in tune. And I think a lot of society these days, it's so built on the, this notion of the, the, the wrong definition of success, right? So for our children to be successful, um, according to societal terms, you know, they have to make straight A's. They have to go to the best school. They have to have that very superior IQ. They have to, you know, we have to set them up for, you know, this quote unquote success. And in the meantime, we're neglecting, you know, a lot of the emotional, spiritual factors that really make up who they are. Um, and when we, when we neglect that, you know, they neglect that. And, um, and I think it's a matter of really just checking in and, and being in tune and being willing to listen and hear and create a safe space for them, you know, when they are going through a hard time. But that takes, you know, being able to do that with yourself. And that's why, you know, going back to what we were saying, checking in with yourself, you know, are you able to create that safe space for yourself, you know, first? And then, that for someone else. So here's the challenge, right? And and everything you shared makes complete sense. Um, Men, and and tell me if if this is valid, I feel like are much more guarded when it comes to the challenges they're facing, um, um, expressing emotion, et cetera. So if I go to Smiley and say, Hey, you know, how's everything going? You know, how are you feeling? You know, there's, in my mind, there's a extremely low possibility of him saying, you know, I'm feeling, you know, miserable and I just don't think anyone appreciates me and I just can't go on. So because, so with that in mind, how do you, how do you help men, right? How do I help guys I know become comfortable with the idea of being in tune with their uh, mental health and, and and doing that assessment of sitting by themselves quietly? Because I'll be honest with you, Dr. Winfrew, if I'm sitting by myself quietly and, you know, there's lots of thoughts going through my mind, which happens all the time, I'm thinking there's probably more work I need to do. There's something that needs to be done. That's why I can't concentrate. I might take a sleep aid. You know, versus thinking, oh, th- this needs to be addressed. So how, how how do you how do you work through that, especially with, with men? Well, I think it's again kind of creating that safe space. And so sometimes the way we can do that is um, if we want to see something, we have to be it first, right? We have to be it before we can see it. And so sometimes it's about going to them and saying, man, I had a really rough day. Um, do you mind just give me a couple minutes where I can just kind of vent, you know, and like tell you about like how I've been feeling today? Sometimes you almost have to that before we can really like inspire someone else to to say like look actually you know 
this this actually is okay to, to say those things. And um, it's sort of like watching someone, you know, jump off that diving board. You know, that's really high. Like, okay, well, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, and so creating that that space for them sometimes is about like kind of modeling, modeling at first. And then, um, and then, or you can also say, you know, man, how are you doing? Okay. And if they say, oh, I'm fine. Everything's good. All right. Well, if you ever need, if you ever need someone, I'm here for you. I'm just a phone call away. You know, so sometimes just if they're not ready or, or willing yet to kind of go there emotionally, or sometimes they, they may just not have the words around it. Um, then just letting them know that you are here. Like if they do ever need someone to speak to and, really having that come across in a genuine way, um, non-judgmental sort of way. And, um, I think men, especially, especially boys, um, I've noticed like throughout my practice, if boys are doing something, they're more inclined to talk about their feelings. So this is just kind of a, a backdoor trick that, I, that I've learned, like where girls are more verbal and they're able to just kind of access those words, you know, um, right away. Guys tend to not, not, not always be so, um, those words aren't always so easily accessible. So if you if you tag it onto something that they like, you know, like a physical activity, and maybe you're out playing tennis with a friend. Hey man, how's it going? How you been feeling lately? What's going on? Like, you know, and you tag it onto like some sort of physical activity, playing basketball or whatever you like to do, um, then that tends to get the flow of words speaking because they're kind of already in their safe space. You know, they're doing something that feels natural to them, that feels good to them. And then you're just kind of bringing something up um, in a way that feels a little bit less, I guess, confrontational in a sense. Um, so I think that's yeah. Important. Yeah, I, I like the fact that you mentioned that that's natural and normal because um, I have two two kids, son and a daughter, and seeing how my daughter interacts with her friends is just like what you described. You know, they'll just start talking and sharing, and it's you know, it's no problem. Whereas with my son, his, his, his buddies, you know, when they were together, it's, you know, a very casual conversation. If they're just sitting still, it's a casual conversation. But once they start becoming active, it's fascinating how it gets louder and more engaging and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and myself as well, this is an adult. Um, I'm definitely more vocal when, you know, I'm active with the guys, whether it's, you know, to, cracking jokes on each other, playing basketball, some activity. So that, that makes sense. And that helps. I'm glad you shared that. So, uh, smile, you get ready, get, get, get ready, smile. Next time you and I get together, I want to trick you into playing some basketball and try to get in your head. <laughs> well, <laughs> well you, you know, it was, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Cause I want to mention two things is one, when you first said, I, I vividly remember less than a month ago, one of my friends said, how are you feeling? And my response was like, none of your business. Yeah. You know, because from a guy's perspective, it seems weak. Right. Now he's like, dude, how's the job? How's the family? What's going on right. here? But it, it felt like my feelings are personal. So I right. threw up a, a, a defensive right. mode of like, none of your business. <laughs> right. What do you mean right. about my feeling? What's wrong with you? So, I mean, that might be cultural, but I, I say that, Dr. Winfro, because we all watched, most of the country watched the incident on the NFL Monday Night Football, and to see all of the football players crying, these big, massive titans crying publicly, I, I wonder what impact, because I was sensitive, and, and it, it, with seeing these guys cry, it made it accessible for everyone else to cry, and I wonder what's the long-tail impact of everyone watching their heroes standing together, hugging and crying at the same time. 
I've never seen that before. And do you think that would have a positive impact on the men letting down their guards just to, to cry or to speak or to share? Yeah, yeah, especially guys in that position where they're revered as, you know, they're tough, they're competitive, they're all these you know, masculine traits and to, to associate them also with something that can be more gentle. I mean, I think that's really the, the most, the beautiful thing there is that you're able to say, you know, look, you can be tough and also gentle at the same time. I mean, you can be both. You can access all those traits at the same time. You know, you don't have to be all the way tough or all the way weak, you know, or, you know, gentle. So reframing that for, for our youth, you know, to be able to say, and, and adults too, to be able to say, look, you can, you can be tough and gentle at the same time. You can be all those things and you get to choose at any moment what you want to be. Yeah, it, it was, it's fascinating seeing these 300 pound men hugging 250 pound men and consoling them. I mean, those were, those were real tears. They were just like shed a tear, like in a movie, they were bawling. And it was just like, wow, I wonder what, how that's going to change the mindset. But um, so thank you. <laughs> but yeah, and switching gears just a little bit. I, I noticed on your webpage, you also deal with different forms of autism. And I, I, I recall when I first saw on TV autism, it was Rain Man. And it's like, well, what's wrong with them with Tom Cruise and, and, I can't think of the other actor, but Rain Man. And then fast forward to about a year ago or two years ago, Elon Musk was on Saturday Night Live saying he was he was autistic or on the scale. How is it? Is there a lot of functioning autistic representatives or do you find a, a large percentage? I do all these numbers. I'm a, a technical guy. Do you find that most of them are like Rain Man or most of them functioning like Elon? Maybe not at the capacity of Elon Musk. But yeah. is it a broad well, spectrum? It, it is like all, the autism spectrum is 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 very very broad. Um, with autism, the most severe form being level three, which is what a lot of people kind of envision as autism. The more you know, the speech impaired, intellectually impaired, you know, that sort of. But there's a lot of other you know, ranges of autism. Level two, level one, which we used to call Aspergers, which we don't call that anymore. It's just all autism spectrum but um there are a lot of high functioning people on the spectrum who are very intelligent very um very much able to be to be um you know very skilled in certain areas that they that they find interesting and in align with what they're really um what they're really good at their rote memorization can be off the charts you know they can be extremely you know successful in, in certain um, areas but it's um, typically the social emotional piece of it um, with a higher functioning that's still affected. Um, and I've definitely seen some issues since COVID, you know, with the social emotional, um, anyone that's been, that's had any sort of delay um, like that and then trying to adjust back to society after COVID, um, that's been a bit of a struggle to try to get, you know, get back to the swing of things. Um, but there are definitely a lot of high functioning people on the spectrum um, that you wouldn't even necessarily know, you know that they were on the spectrum unless you were in a relationship with them and where you start to see the social emotional piece um, start to rear, you know, rear its head. Um, but there's tons of people who can be, you know, extremely impactful in different fields um, with the knowledge that they can hold, you know, especially when they're the higher functioning. Okay. So here's another question I have. I have this, I have this, maybe it, you can call it a theory all things being relatively equal in terms of um, 
children, right? You don't have anyone who's uh, has any real deficiencies or challenges mentally. Um, intelligence can be exhibited differently. For example, and, and, and this is this is a question. For example, you have those that have the type of intelligence where it fits the model of how intelligence is measured in our society. In other words, they can go into school and, um, you know, make straight A's and, you know, they have that attention span that allows them to re remember and recall things easily. And then you have others who exhibit intelligence and in, in their, their, their wit, their expression and their um, connection with others. Is that true? And can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. We have, um, you know, in the field, we think of IQ as in, you know, our intellectual quotient, right? So how intellectual or our intellectual capacity is overall. But I do think that, you know, if we really break down IQ, we look at it in different aspects of IQ, you know, verbal comprehension, visual spatial, processing speed, working memory. We have a lot of different aspects that we look at within IQ. And some people can be, you know, off the charts in their verbal expression, you know, they're just really good at being able to speak or being able to write or, you know, use their words and comprehend while they're listening, things like that. Um, they can be off the charts in one of those areas, or maybe it's a visual spatial. Maybe they're really good at being able to envision something and creating it, um, bits and pieces, putting it together, things like that. Um, so there's that side of it, but I do, I do see a, really a, a trend with the youth these days where they're becoming a lot more, and, and I hope this trend continues, becoming a lot more enlightened in terms of emotional intelligence. Um, and I see, you know, emotional perceptual intelligence where there's this other realm that I feel like we haven't yet grasped in terms of how to measure it you know, from a clinical perspective. I think it's much more abstract um, than, in, than um, what we've been able to do with just strictly intelligence from a cognitive perspective. But um, I do think there's this emotional intelligence, perceptual awareness, you know, piece that people can have. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? that better okay so i do think there is this emotional intelligence and perceptual awareness um factor that someone can be extremely sharp in um that we haven't quite measured yet so you can have someone who's book smart who's really good who's very adaptive and resourceful and processes things quickly and memorizes but you can have that type of intelligence um and then you can also have the intelligence of just someone who almost has like a sixth sense like a, a spiritual awareness or a perceptual awareness and emotional connection connectedness you know that um that i think it's also just very adaptive socially and emotionally um and i think it's what the world needs more sure, of sure right yeah and one, one of the reasons i i asked that question um is because i have a, a follow-up to that so i wonder if some of the assessments that are used to measure especially in kids their iq i wonder if some of those tests are skewed or provide an advantage to some children who are raised in the environment that that test is created for versus another child. And I'm asking this, I don't know. I'm versus another child who's, you know, I'm, and, and maybe intelligence is just there or it isn't, I don't know. But, but I wonder if some of these tests, these assessments that are used, if they're skewed and, and, and those that have a level of intelligence aren't able to be measured because these tests aren't mm -hmm. designed for them. Talk to me about that. 
I, I, I understand. And, and there are, um, and this is why it's good to do a, a detailed history, you know, prior to getting someone's IQ. I never would just have someone come in and do the test without knowing about their background, um, because it is important um, to know, like, the nurture side of things, their environment, how they were raised, what educational opportunities they had, you know, did, did they have the opportunity to reach their full intellectual capacity? But as we mentioned, you know, you're born with a certain capacity, right? And so, like, but was the nurture, was the environment, in a, you know, set up for you in a way that you can really maximize that. And sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes, you know, there wasn't the educational opportunities. Sometimes there wasn't the, the nutritional um, availability, you know, for them to really um, have all the resources that they need um, to be able to maximize that. So that is important to know. And yes, you know, some of these tests can tap into um, areas that, you know, if they weren't nurtured, then we might not get their full capacity. And, and that's, why it is important to go to a psychologist who really understands the holistic perspective. Um, it's because, you know, there's certain, certain, certain parts of the IQ test are very good at not, and not being able to, um, you know, are, are very good at kind of eliminating that compound, um, that you wouldn't necessarily need, um, you know, a, a lot of like environmental factors to really, um, make that part you know, the highest it could possibly be. But then there are certain aspects of the IQ test that, that would reflect any sort of lack of education or lack of um, exposure. Um, so you just have to be really familiar with the test itself and with the client's background to be able to determine, okay, what is the most valid parts of the IQ test. Okay. And the last question, and then we're going to head to the final portion of, of the, uh, the interview. So capacity, the capacity you're born with, can that change? Can it, can it, can things be done for to increase or is, is it what it's going to be for life? Yeah, that and that's a good question. I and I'm not, I, you know, I'm not at, I guess, like fully 100% confident in saying yes or no to that. Um, because it is, you know, the, again, the brain. I have so much respect for the brain. It is extremely adaptive. So, you know, I I believe there is, you know, a capacity there. However, you know, I'm I'm never one to rule out um, extreme circumstances. If there are, you know, if if you if you're born with a certain capacity, but yet then you are forced to be extremely adaptive you know maybe there's trauma or maybe you're put on an island and you have to survive you know maybe there's like certain extreme conditions you know that would bring out you know that need to achieve higher um and then i do think the brain steps up to the plate you know i think it, it can in those extreme circumstances um that's why i think a lot of people that can come from very um you know i guess like poverty stricken sort of environments you know can can achieve a lot more than maybe generations before them because like they look at it maybe as so much more important you know so much it's almost like a survival mechanism that, that, sure. kicks in, um, that then puts them in a position where it's so meaningful and and the brain recognizes meaning you know when something is meaningful it steps to the plate um so i'm, I'm definitely not one to say that you know there is this cutoff, you know, when you're born, I do think that there can be these conditions that one can rise even above, you know, what the genetic capacity, you know, if we could measure it would say. Um, so I don't want to say there's a cutoff, but I think in general, you know, general terms, um, we, we have this genetic, you know, uh, makeup, you know, that, that is, um, in most cases, very high, you know, and we just have to really be able to have the nurture to support it. Okay. And then, uh, then this is the last one, I promise. <laughs> so, so you're learning that takes place, as, <laughs> the learning takes place as a child, right? Your first, is it your first three years that are crucial, first five years, um, that where you're, 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 you're developing kind of the personality and, and that sort of thing that, that you're going to be. And then after that, 
the growth or impact that your environment has on you is is, uh, is diminished a bit. Is it the first three years, first five years, where that your your environment plays a critical role? I think it, it, I honestly, every stage of development is extremely critical, but but it depends kind of what you're what you're referencing. Like the first, in terms of cogn- cognitive mm. ability, um, definitely. The, oh gosh, it's so hard. The first five years is really important for that. Um, you know, the basis of our, of our brain development. So really some really foundational parts of the brain are developing during that time. So we really need that to be intact. But again, every stage of development is super important. Um, and for emotional, for connectedness, you know, that first year of life is extremely important to develop that emotional IQ, the EQ, um, because we really need that bonding to take place. Makes sense. No, that's awesome. And, and before we move into the final four, is, are there any things that uh, you want to share or that we didn't ask you or something you wanted to say or something we should have asked you before we move into the final four, Dr. Winfro? No, no, I, I think I mean, I think you guys touched on a lot of really important questions and very thought provoking questions. <laughs> I appreciate it. We appreciate you. So let's move into the final four. So I want to ask one question, then Andre will ask another question, then I'll ask a third, and Andre will conclude with the last one. But this is more just uh, we we like to ask this to all of our guests. And and if you had the power to have dinner with anyone alive or dead, anyone, who, who would you want to have as the other three representatives at your dinner table? Who and why? Oh gosh. Um, well, I know of two off the top of my head. Um, I would say Sigmund Freud. That's a good one. <laughs> so, well, okay, I know three. And Sigmund Freud. I he's a controversial figure in a sense, but I think that in many ways he was very brilliant um, and and witty also. So I would love to have a conversation with him. And and also Carl Rogers, I think is great um, because he uh, um, he comes from a very humanistic perspective and very uh, more emotional. Uh, you know, connectedness, sort of um, humanistic, you know, accept, acceptance sort of mentality. Um, and then there's also, um, I would say, oh gosh, I'm kind of tied between the third person, but probably the third person, Maya Ooh. Angelou, because okay. I think she's amazing. And she was um, just such a great influence in terms of, you know, how to live your life with grace and how to thrive for that yeah. passionate life, you know, and then be able to live with, um, um, she she had a quote, and I'm probably gonna mess up the quote, but um, basically how to thrive and not mm. just survive, you know, but how to live your life with, um, you know, with passion mm. and gratitude. You know, I love yeah. that perspective. All right. So when you think about your life to date, um, professionally or personally, what's been your greatest success? Oh gosh, um, my greatest success. I mean, I have to my son most likely. My uh, I my connection with my son. I I think that we have a great um, a great bond and it's something that I've really tried to nurture. You know, he's 14 now. So, um, he's been my best teacher <laughs> throughout my entire life, you know, and, and you know, being a psychologist, people think, Oh, it's probably easy. Yeah. And it's not <laughs> being a parent is different than being yeah. a psychologist. Um, but you know, I do try to nurture that bond you know, whenever I can. And, and the fact that, um, he can come to me and tell me things, you know, every little, every time he comes to me and tells me something that I know I would have never told my parents <laughs> or like if he needs to reach out to me and say you know, that to me, those little successes are, are what means the most to me is knowing that he trying to create a safe space for him. I mean, I think that that's huge. We're in the same boat. I have a 14 year old also. Oh, and, thanks. um, 
it's fun. You know, every, every stage is fun. Uh, I'm enjoying this stage because he and I, you know, are doing more, you know, stuff together. I don't know that he has gotten to the point. I think it's a different dynamic with a son and a mom than a son and a dad in terms of coming to me and saying, you know, whatever's on his mind. But I'm, but I love it. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, no, that's it. And you, and you, and you get to provide to him, you know, that, um, that modeling of that emotional awareness and all of that. So that exactly, you can be one of those guys on the field crying, you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. Just, a little side note: we went to a. I, I don't think I told you this, uh, Kev, but we went to a funeral not too long ago. Um, someone very close to us passed, and you know, I had to give a, a, a slight um, talk in, and I got choked up. Surprisingly, well. Wow. For them, it probably wasn't surprising. But my son, I, afterwards, I was looking at him, Dr. Winfro, trying to get a sense of, like, how is he processing this, you know? Because, you know, you definitely, as a, as a guy, you don't want your, and, and don't judge me, Dr. Winfro, but you don't want your son to be weak. <laughs> you don't want him to be, to, be, to be weak or perceived as weak. But at the same time, you want him to be able to be in tune with his you know, his, his emotions, you know, to some extent. You know, it's, I, I, I have a 15 year old daughter and uh, it was three years ago, our, our dog died. And, and I was telling her, it's like, okay, we had to go to the vet to see him and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, we had him for seven years. I was like, it's going to be emotional. It's going to be this. We get there and I start bawling. I cried. I mean, boohoo. I was tearing just just crying and crying and my wife and my daughter was consoling me and then she tells me later she's like i've never seen you cry daddy and i was like i love that dog and see it was just so when she said that to me uh that was her first time because we've been to a few funerals but she's never seen me grieve well you know what every time you show them how how every time you show them those emotions you're teaching them you're always teaching them right we're in and as, as much as we don't always want to be teachers 24 7 we are or we're always teachers so that they're learning from us everything that we do everything that we say everything every every response that we make they're learning you know so when you show them those strong emotions you're also showing them how to deal with them you know so it's important that you let them see those strong emotions sure. because then they know okay first of all it's safe for me to have that it's okay for me to feel that and second of all i can manage it i can deal with it if you never show them the emotion, you also never teach them how to deal with it. That's fair. I like that. And that moves us to the the, the second or the third super uh, question. So if you had to pick one superpower that you have, uh, Superman sees through lead or can't see her, he flies and Wonder Woman has an invisible plane and a truth lasso and the honk is his strength. What what is your superpower? Oh my gosh, I would love to be able to fly. I would love to be able to fly <laughs> because I you know, <laughs> just that sense of feeling like um, free, you know. And, and I think you know it's hard for us to achieve that in today's society. That sense of just freedom, the mental freedom and, and the clarity that comes with that. You know, so I would love to be able to fly far above the clouds where you can just kind of detach yourself from all the worldly things and be able to just be at peace. I think that's what what peace would be like. Nice, nice. Awesome. And you could easily go from Boca to Riley in no time. I could. It would be a lot cheaper. A lot cheaper. <laughs> a lot cheaper. <laughs> and efficient. And efficient. No delays. No right, 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 right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, so this last question of the final four, uh, what would you, what would be the title of your biography? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, my gosh. I like that. And I think this was actually... 
oh gosh, I think this is already a title. I'm probably going to steal it from somebody else. Um, but something along the lines of like becoming, becoming who you are, you know what I mean? Which I think that's what life is about. Like becoming your okay. self, becoming your actualized self, like the person you're meant to be like finding that journey, yeah. finding that purpose, finding that, I think that's where real happiness comes. Um, so like becoming, you know, becoming yourself. Um, I like it. Good theme to live by is always in search of learning about yourself. And that's how you're going to be your, your best self. You know, it's interesting as you, as you share that title. Um, it, what what I've gathered from the time, the short time we'd spent together with you, is that you one have, have a real passion <clears throat> for this profession and what you do. So as it relates to you becoming, I can see you constantly learning, growing, evolving. And becoming the, the the best psychologist you could possibly be um, because of that. So becoming, yeah, it just it, it resonates. It makes perfect sense. Let, let, let me ask you another question. This, this isn't one of the final four, but as you think about, you know, if this pr- profession weren't the one you pursued and in another world, what would you be doing professionally? You know, and I, I like this question too, is I would love to have been a professional volleyball player. <laughs> oh, okay. That has nothing to okay. do with psychology. But, well, it, it, yeah. at surface level, it has nothing to do with psychology, but I think it has everything yeah, yeah. to do with psychology. Because um, sure. yeah, I, I miss the aspect of, of sports and being competitive and really pushing yourself to be um, the best you can be physically. I think that takes a lot of actually mental, um, you know, mental awareness and being mental fortitude as well. So I love right, the combination right. of, of the, um, the, you know, athleticism. I think that's a, um, a great thing to strive for. So I would, I would have loved to be a professional volleyball player. That's what I would have been. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I don't know anything about you, but based on your energy, your energy, I could totally see you. Have you played volleyball in the past? I, I did. I did. Yeah. I, I was okay. playing I could see that. Yeah, I can totally see that. Just just oh, based on your energy, you sound you sound like an athlete. So yeah, that, that'd oh, be a, an you. awesome uh, alternate career. Yeah, and yeah. I still do a lot, a lot of high intensity workouts. I do all that because I, I okay. guess like, mind body connection is so important. So I'm all about okay, okay. You, you know, you know what's interesting. Earlier, you talked to about finding what works for you. Some people, in terms of uh, mental health, some people don't do well with the communication. I'm probably going to label these wrong, forgive me, but the communication style of, of receiving mental health or support, others need activity and things like that. And so for me, this coming comes back to your high intensity workouts. For me, working out is, is kind of my release, especially when I'm feeling kind of like, you know, my head isn't centered or I don't feel centered. Working out is just if I, if I miss it for a few days, I just feel like I'm about to implode. So, um, yeah, the high intensity workouts <laughs> resonate with me. I, I know I was telling Andre yesterday that, uh, whenever I felt stress, whenever I feel stress, I, I measure my stress by the amount of pushups I do. So some days I have a 10 pushup stress on Thursday. I had a hundred pushup stress factor <laughs> and I just kept doing the pushup until I wasn't stressful anymore. Oh. And that's how I guess as a dude, I just, uh, and then sometimes I have to run down to the gym and just like at two o'clock in the afternoon, 
I just stop, turn off the computer, go to the gym, and then I come back around three, three o'clock. No, that's great. It. I mean, I always like, I always <laughs> try to remember like energy is never created nor destroyed, right? So and that's right. you have a lot that's of right. people, mental energy and mental tension. If you release that through the body, that's a great conduit, you know, to release it. Yeah. Um, I think as people who don't have the release, you know, it becomes very toxic inside. Um, and then, you know, yeah. if you, people think therapy is expensive and, you know, these sorts of self-care things are expensive. But I'm like, you know, if you don't if you don't pay for it now, you're gonna pay for it in medical bills later. So <laughs> you gotta yeah. find you gotta find a way find a way. No, you know, do whatever you need to do. But but I would encourage you sure. like to, to do when you're doing those physical activities and the the physical exertion, like try to you know do it with a friend. You know, do it where you can also experience that like that that um personal connection as well with somebody else. I think that's an important thing that you can add on to that and to be able to experience, you know, that intensity, even if it's physical with somebody else, you know, that's still a connection that you create with that person, you know, going through the same sort of level of intensity um, that you can sort of be on the same plane with and feel that connection. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm gonna pass it to well, Kev uh, for, the, for the wrap up here, but go ahead, Kev. Yeah, I wanna say thank you, Dr. Winthrow. We really appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you for having and, me. And I'll just say too, real quick, Dr. Winfrey, I really appreciate the, the suggestions and the insight you gave specifically related to how we can identify, assess our own mental health. It's so important. So, but I think I thank you for all of that you shared, of course. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I think if, if we can create that mental clarity and, and emotional space for ourselves, then we can do that for other people. So I think it all starts with us.